good jobs, quality jobs. We still have so much to do for women's rights. For the parents to go to work, you need good childcare. We will not have a successful recovery if we leave social rights. Reinventing our way of building and living. It is our right. So, welcome to this edition of Eurofan Talks. I am delighted to be joined today, this morning, by Daphne Arendt, who is our expert on our unique living, working and COVID-19 e-survey. Uh, this is something that we launched back in 2020 with the onset of COVID as it uh, overtook Europe and indeed the world. And Eurofound was one of the first out of the um, stops to launch a survey to ask Europeans how this was impacting their lives, impacting their work and how they were experiencing this monstrous, huge, major change in their lives. So we now have uh, the fifth wave of Eurofan survey, which is just coming on stream. It's an exciting time for us in Eurofan. But uh, welcome, Daphne. Good morning. This, this morning. Um, and we want to get into a little bit of a deep dive on the results. Um, but perhaps before we do that, can you talk to me briefly just about the survey and um, how it was conducted and what does make it so unique? Well, I always like to begin with the story that uh, it started as an idea in uh, the social policies unit at Eurofound, where we knew COVID was, was there and we thought, how about we do a little survey to uh, see how it's affecting people? We thought we would get a thousand responses, maybe, and we would have been super excited with a thousand responses. And then with the first round, which was in April 2020, we ended up getting like over 60,000 respondents. So it was a great uh, success. And I think what helped a lot is that uh, we have experience in carrying out surveys. So we, we knew which questions to use from the EQLS and from the EWCS. So these were tried and tested questions that we knew. That's the quality of life survey and the working condition survey. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. So that was one part of the development. But obviously, uh, as you know, with these two surveys, they take forever to organize and this needed to be done quickly. So one way of doing that was to actually uh, use convenience sampling. So uh, we used our contacts, our stakeholders, and we sent the link of the survey to them and asked them to fill in the questionnaire. And then um, we used social media. So we used uh, Facebook. Initially, I think it was only Facebook later on. I think we may have gone also to Instagram. But uh, with the great help, I think this is what also makes it unique, that it was a, a combined effort. So we use different skills. So the skills of the researchers combined with the skills of uh, INC, information and communication, to reach out even further through Facebook. Well, here we are, the fifth uh, round, resulting in close to um, 200,000 respondents, I think roughly 160,000 from the EU. 
And um, this allows us to do a great amount of work. And I think you asked why is it so unique? Well, I think it was really the only source of data within the EU that tracked over time uh, the developments. I think the jewel of it is, and we, we, we need to use that more still, is that it's actually a panel survey. So we asked respondents uh, whether we could interview them again. And, well, I think that's super unique because from these people you can really see, uh, you know, were they unemployed at the beginning of the pandemic? Did they get their job back? And what did that then mean for their well-being or for their financial situation, for their outlook on life? And absolutely, what you're talking about there is a sort of trajectory that is is something which is unique to what we are able to tell the world about the experience of Europeans during that time. And as you said, we've gone from 60,000 in the first round to more than 200,000 people across Europe um, responding to this survey. So that's a good sample across all EU member states, as you said, and a little bit beyond. But if we concentrate just on the EU member states, I mean, we talked there about that link and collaboration between the research methodology and, if you like, the communication platforms and outreach. I think that's important maybe just to highlight here. Should our users, should our readers be be concerned in any way? Should they have a fear that what we're giving them in terms of these results is not sound, is not evidence-based in the same way as the previous or other surveys are that we, we operate? I think uh, uh, they shouldn't be concerned as long as we do our job well. So it is our job to make sure that we don't make generalizations. I think that's important. So even if we had interviewed uh, 500,000 people, uh, it would be different than a random probability sample like we use on the European Quality of Life Survey and the Working Conditions Survey. Uh, because that allows us to make um, statements about what uh, the population thinks. What, what we can do very well with this survey is we can compare the groups that have taken part within our survey. So I always use the example, uh, we can look at the situation of unemployed respondents versus employed respondents. We can look at the situation of women compared to men that have taken part in our survey. And um, what I like about the survey is that it allows us to to see developments, to see trends. And then um, it's very good also to see that many of these trends are then later on also found on on the bigger surveys, but they come with a time lapse. And the nice thing about this survey is that we were always quick. And it was more timely, absolutely. It was very timely. Um, And also just to highlight that across the member states on each occasion, there was um, a sample size which was required uh, for each member state for you to be in a position to be able to analyse and use that as the basis. Do you want to just talk a little bit about how you managed to ensure that that sort of comparability was there? So what we did is we worked uh, very closely with uh, this media campaign company, but we gave very clear instructions on the breakdown of the sample in each uh, member state. So we were doing what you could call quota sampling. So we were saying, we want this many men, we want this many women, we want this many in this age group. Uh, And actually, 
very importantly, we want people of different um, educational attainment backgrounds because that was a bit the risk. And uh, what's also important to remember is that we can weigh the data. So we can correct the data to reflect the population structure of the European Union and, in fact, of the member states. The only thing that we can't do is we can't control for social media use. And that's uh, where we not necessarily have to be careful, but we have to be aware that it's an online survey, so it attracts people that have access to online, and then possibly it attracts people that are slightly more pro-European through our stakeholders on the one hand, and then people that perhaps use social media to uh, voice their frustrations. But that's fine because it allows us to also compare and analyze these different groups. And I think that's what makes this survey uh, so valuable and uh, insightful. Well, I think we've established that it is a good reflection and a fair reflection of um, the, the feelings, experiences of Europeans at this critical moment. So if we can, uh, can we look a little bit here before we deep dive into the more granular aspects of the, the findings? Can you tell me what the, the main findings from this round uh, were compared perhaps to previous rounds? Have you seen an evolution across the main domains that we have uh, surveyed? Yes. I begin with young people. So young people have really been our concern. Right? We saw very early on that they were the group that was uh, hit hardest, that they were the group that was suffering most in terms of a mental well-being. That makes a lot of sense, considering that the, the restrictions from the non-pharmaceutical interventions that were put in place by the governments had an impact on them. They couldn't go out, they couldn't go to school. So I think they paid a huge price in terms of uh, human capital, so in terms of being able to develop themselves, in terms of social capital skills, to learn how to, to, to meet other people, to develop your social skills. So... It's not surprising that they were the ones that were uh, suffering the most. And now that the restrictions were lifted, we see an improvement. So we see that the mental well-being of young people is less bad than it was uh, throughout the pandemic. But it's still pretty bad. So it's still worse than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. And that just comes to show um, how big the impact has been. I think it also shows that um, it's very difficult or it's been very difficult to provide support. So we need uh, provision for young people to, to be able to talk about their problems. And then um, at the moment, we're not particularly offering them a future. So with the war in Ukraine going on, I think um, it's very distressing for young people to cope. So I think partially the reason why we're, we didn't find the expected um, upsurge of, of well-being amongst this group along the lines of, yay, finally I'm free again, is this new dark cloud uh, that's hanging above them. Clearly they had, uh, depending on, I suppose, on their age group, but they had also had the experience of the Great Recession. Either they lived through it or they had the, the impact of that, which followed them through just in advance of, of the uh, emergence of COVID, followed then by the war in Ukraine. So yes, for young people particularly, it's probably not surprising that 
their mental well-being is still not at the levels it was prior to the onset, onset of COVID. Yeah. And so the second point that kind of leads nicely is the development of trust. So our survey started in April 2020 and um, trust was relatively, well, compared to later on, was relatively high. And uh, what we think we captured there was still this rally around the flag effect that you see. So when there's a crisis, uh, you find people really uh, strongly supporting their leaders or their institutions. And that's we didn't look so much political leadership, but we looked at trust in institutions, in the various institutions, in government, but also in health and in the media. So very important. And in the EU. But... Um, what we saw at the beginning was that trust was relatively good, let's say. Not, not great, but good. And then it started really dropping throughout. And um, there are two theories here. So on the one hand, it's basically the uh, rally round the flag effect just fading off and trust returning to its normal levels. Because we need to remember that trust was never that high. It, it, it had been already shaken up by the recession. Then it kind of got back to a relatively stable period. And then we see this. But what I think um, the other part of the story is that there's obviously a greater divide now so that, that we see more trusting citizens and we see less trusting citizens. And from that, uh, um, the survey, I think, has been particularly useful by including some of these questions. So we've learned that those that were um, heavy users of social media or that preferred social media as their um, source of information had far lower trust than those who use more traditional forms of media. And I think you see that gap kind of growing between the two. So we see within our respondents, we see more a more polarized Europe than we did at the beginning of the survey. So in fact, if I was to, to ask you a little bit more about trust here, and we can come back to the other losers, if there are any winners, I'm not sure, but um, the, the, the losers, those who have been most impacted later. But in terms of this trust, I mean, trust is fundamental. So when we look at this declining trust, despite the fact that we're seeing employment levels rise, despite the fact that we're seeing the restrictions being lifted, what are the drivers of this declining trust? What do you think are the main elements that are still at play? Yeah, I think this is such an important question and it's also a little bit a million dollar question in the sense that we do need to follow up still. So the fifth round was taken at, I think, a particular tense time again. So on the one hand, corona restrictions were lifted, but I don't think people had recuperated yet. So yes... Uh, employment uh, levels were picking up. And that's one of the successes, of course, of how politicians handled it this time. But then there was this dark cloud of Ukraine. There was insecurity about the cost of living. So really rising costs of living. Energy, the energy drama had already been, you know, it's not like it came all of a sudden. It just got worse, but it was already on people's minds. So... To me, it seems like there's just one problem after the next. And what I found um, rather 
worrying is that, okay, on the one hand, I talk about polarization. So I say social media and traditional media, those groups are very different. But what we used to find is that uh, people that were worse off were the ones that had least trust. And it's still the case. And there's still really a significant gap between people that are better off. But what we found this time is that it's the group that is better off that actually had a larger drop in trust compared to the previous round. And to me, that says that even amongst this group, you're starting to see a bit of unrest or a bit of discomfort or discontent. And that would be worrying. But Daphne, I'm fascinated by that because in previous research that Eurofound has carried out, we've seen some link between access to public services, quality public services, education, transport, health, etc. And that where that's good and where that's well-functioning in an organisation or in a society, um, the impact is that you see increase in trust in the institutions that are available. Here, what you're talking about is that these people who are better off, if you like, um, in our societies... They're less directly impacted by these things, by the nature of the beast. So what is it that's driving this this decline in their trust? And are they becoming vocal and engaged with respect to how they manifest this? I think this is a first result. So we need to follow this trend. We need to see, are we going to see this further developing or is this a one-off blip? So I think a little bit of care is required, but it does seem to a fit into the overall picture that people are worried, getting worried about the provision of healthcare, for instance, or access to public services. Uh, we're hearing a lot of issues uh, around labor shortages, that uh, things are not functioning. And so, you know, it may also well be, and this is what we're, where we need to study this much more carefully, that in the countries where public service provision has been very good, this is also the countries where probably you have more people that have less difficulties making ends meet, uh, that in these countries you see some shifts in the provision. Uh, these are citizens that are very used to things working very well. So it could be a sign of discontent in that regard. But allow us to, to monitor this further. And, 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 and as you know, uh, one of our programs um, is to, to really keep monitoring trust over time and, and to look at social cohesion. But again, if we use the e-survey as sort of a, a pointer of where we see initial evidence, this could be an example of that. And, and it's good for us to then pay attention to it and to pick it up. It seems to be signposting certain issues. I mean, some of them which are slightly more, I suppose, philosophical in a way is how do you communicate better with the citizen to ensure that they understand exactly what is at play? How do you combat disinformation, misinformation at the highest level, but also at the lowest level? Um, but then you're looking also at how do policymakers address the issues of better quality uh, public services, uh, access to those public services in a situation where there is a cost of living crisis and where inflation is rising and where the war in Ukraine is going to have a knock-on effect, which will be, I suppose, uh, for a period that we can't even determine, unfortunately, at this stage. And maybe if I can, if I can move on to that a little bit, because there is a link there between 
what you've just been talking about and how it impacts on the trust levels and the impact of the war in Ukraine. And on this particular round, the survey did look at how Europeans experienced this. Now, of course, Ukraine, Ukrainians are also Europeans, but here we were specifically asking EU citizens to a large degree, what did they feel um, about the response of policymakers to the war in Ukraine? And perhaps you can speak a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, it was really nice that we were able to add uh, just a few questions at the end of the questionnaire uh, on this topic. So again, it was very timely because the e-survey was fielded at the end of March, went into the field at the end of March, and I, I believe the Ukraine war started at the end of February. Um, and so what we found uh, when we asked whether respondents supported the actions, that there was really strong support um, with for the economic sanctions. Uh, I think it was like 70% of the respondents that that agreed. And then there was also very strong support for humanitarian aid to Ukraine, and there was good support for um, providing housing and assistance to the Ukrainian refugees that had then left and come to the EU member states. Uh, there was somewhat less support, but that's also not surprising for the any military action. That was one side of the story that we found, the other side that we found is that citizens themselves or respondents themselves had actually done things. So we found that uh, they had already donated money to support Ukraine. That was one of the questions that we asked. Uh, um, I think that's around a third of respondents that had done that. And um, also goods, clothes and that kind of medical supplies. Um, with more of the respondents uh, planning to do so. So overall, early days when we asked these questions, and I think uh, very useful if we could repeat some of this at a future stage. Absolutely, Daphne. It's an issue which is an unpleasant uh, side of um, society, uh, but one that we will need to respond to if we want to avoid this breakup and this sort of polarization that you discussed earlier, um, and that we don't start seeing a representation of a US-style um, political and, and societal system at play. But we also had a quick look at the um, energy costs at a time when we're seeing huge increases. Um, there was also some feedback on that and how that was impacting the lives of Europeans. Yes. Oh, it's good that you say that because that's another one of the overall trends is that so despite the fact that the economy was picking up, we saw uh, actually an increase in the proportion of uh, respondents that said they had difficulties making ends meet. If I'm correct, it's actually the first time it had gone back up again. That's worrying. And then the other thing we saw is that there was, um, in terms of people not being able to pay their utility bills, that had increased. So that had increased uh, by three percentage points. It went from 13% to 16%. So we really see an increase there. And the other thing we saw is that there were a lot of people that were actually worried that in the future they wouldn't be able to pay these bills. So even if at the moment they were still able to, in the future they would be concerned. And then um, the group that already has difficulties making uh, paying these bills is even more worried, or there are even larger numbers 
that are worried that they won't be able to pay. So, you know, the perception among people, and I think that brings us back to the earlier group of, of more better off citizens, is that there are difficult times ahead financially. And I mean, you, you know, you open up any newspaper, any social media platform, that's the thing you see, rising energy costs, uh, gas at the gas station has never been as high as, I think, since the oil crisis in 73. So it's not surprising that you see this concern. And we also asked a little question among uh, people that had cars, whether they thought, you know, it would be more difficult to, to, to maintain or keep up their car costs and there as well you see a third sort of saying yes I'm, I'm worried about that so in fact what I'm hearing from you is that whereas in previous rounds and on an ongoing basis we always know that young people take a hit um, that people further from furthest from the labor market take a hit those who are less well off take a hit but in this occasion we're also seeing that those who are perhaps better off um, are also experiencing negative impacts both of, of the pandemic but also now of the, the implications of the, of the war in Ukraine can I come back a little bit also then to, to women we talked about women at um, an earlier stage in the survey and we saw the impact on women was quite considerable, not least because of the work-life balance issues of trying to manage the children and the young people who were staying at home um, and the restrictions that were at play, but also because of their jobs and the fact that they more, are more often in, in, in part-time employment and et cetera, et cetera. Would you, would you take me through what they have experienced or how you see the evolution for women? I think it's good to, to start by saying that prior to the pandemic, we saw positive developments in terms of gender equality. And then during the pandemic, uh, we saw some uh, worrying trends. So for instance, the division of labor, of unpaid labor, very much fell on the shoulders of women. So when the schools shut, it was the, the women that took most uh, responsibility for the care of their children at home. Uh, it was the women that were expressing more problems trying to concentrate on their job while working from home. So we think that from the e-survey, you really see that women, um, and then particularly women with young children, they are the other sort of group of victims that we have identified for whom the pandemic has been particularly difficult. And in fact, one of the things we saw was that in this round, there had been an increase in the number of women that were looking to receive mental health care. So I think that's evidence of the problem. Now that, that uh, there's this return to school, everything is open again, the question is, are we going to be able to return to that um, upward trend of, of more gender equality or have we taken a step back and do we need to sort of reassert some of these rights, quote unquote, uh, normal rights that allow women to go to work? Uh, what kind of choices are being made in households now that childcare isn't necessarily as available as it was pre-pandemic because of labor shortages. Of um, I've heard stories of people just being told, so, sorry, but you can't bring your child. 
So I think it's very important that we um, consider women. Then from an economic point of view, there's, you know, here we're talking of sort of the nuclear family, the traditional family. But we also shouldn't forget that there are a lot of women that, that bring up their children alone. And young women, for instance, were the ones that often worked in temporary jobs, in less good jobs. So they were also more likely to have lost their employment and now that's all well and doable if your partner earns money, but if you're on your own and you then cannot find childcare, you're really struggling. So again, I think towards policymakers, that would be an area where I would focus my attention. Daphne, and it, it reminds me, uh, paraphrasing Simone de Beauvoir, who said you only need an economic, political or, or religious crisis to actually threaten the rights of, of women that have been well-earned over previous centuries. So I think we need to be mindful and careful that that is not the case uh, as we see these various crises rolling out. And maybe it's a good time to look there at what does the future hold, not only for women at work, but also in the way that we work. Because the, the pandemic brought us into a sort of a telework revolution where everyone, where it was possible, was working from home. And of course, that has continued to a large degree. But there has been a trickle back to the office. Maybe it has been more than a trickle. And uh, I think we we're seeing hybrid work beginning to be sort of the preferred option for many. Uh, that being said, what kind of impact, before you go into the actual results from that... What has been the impact for women of that? Because there's a sort of a, an unseen element to that, isn't there, in terms of if women are not present in the workplace and they stay at home in their teleworkable jobs, ostensibly that could be seen to be a positive for, for women and work-life balance. But ultimately, what does that mean for their long-term trajectory in terms of their careers, their visibility, their promotion prospects? Very good question, Mary. I think it just shows how important it is that um, any policy that we now develop in terms of telework provides equal rights to men and women and takes all these issues into consideration. So in the future, if you're starting to think about uh, teleworking being a, a fundamental element of work, then perhaps HR needs to reconsider how you evaluate performance. So uh, consider that you may see people less, but that doesn't mean that they're doing their work. So that's one side of the story. Uh, the other side of the story is that amongst women, from at least from our survey, you see slightly larger preference to work from home because it allows them to combine work with family responsibilities. Now, I suppose I'm a bit of a feminist, but I think it should be the problem of both men and women, these decisions of the couple, and I'm sure for a lot of people it is. Uh, but what, yeah, what we're seeing is that that preference is slightly higher amongst women. And overall, I was a bit surprised, and I don't know if this is where our sample is possibly a bit biased because of the um, higher levels of education, to see how many people had actually returned to work full time. So to me, that shows that this great telework revolution has not really happened. But, you know, let's wait for, for data from, from uh, Eurostat to confirm that. Uh, but at least on the East survey, we're seeing a mismatch. So we're seeing that, that many respondents have had to return to work. But there's a lot of them that would like to be able to still continue 
teleworking. Mm. So there may be some element that's not quite so voluntary as all that. I suppose that's what we're seeing, right? If people could choose, then they would be uh, probably still more at home. Now, we didn't really analyze it in detail, but we did ask a question where we we asked what the reasons were. So you did see that um, many people were still a little bit worried about COVID at the time of the, the survey. So that might change, right? So if we come to a time where there is less COVID, uh, you may see a slight shift here again in this reason why people don't want to go back to work. But we also saw that uh, there is a group and more women than men that want to stay at home because of childcare responsibilities and they haven't been able to sort these out. Presumably pre-pandemic, they were sorted out. I don't know, you know, people may also have had children during the pandemic and not yet able to find solutions. So again, uh, what I like about the e-survey is that it gives us these little hints of where we should be looking. So I think childcare is one of the areas that will deserve a lot of attention for us to, to see the developments, make sure the profession is a profession that people want to go to, where they want to work in, make it an attractive profession. But as you say, it's, um, and that is also a shared responsibility, both men and women are looking for childcare for their children. But something I suppose also, when you talk about the pain points that the survey helps us to identify, I think that's fundamental and, and critical, clearly. But at the same time, we need to be mindful of the fact that not all jobs are teleworkable. And I think it's a total of about a third that we're looking at in, in overall are teleworkable and the rest, of course, require people to be present in the workplace for the rest of us to be able to to live our lives effectively. So Daphne, we're coming to the end now of this uh, fascinating discussion and thank you very much. Uh, We've looked at the initial results and of course it really is only just the tip of what you're telling us here today. But at the end of each of these Eurofan talks, we do ask you to kind of drill down if you possibly can and really distill it into three main points that if you had a policymaker in an elevator going up in the Berlimont that you would say to them, this is what I found and you need to take care of this. So if you wouldn't mind just closing us off on on Eurofan, talk to me in three. Okay, I'm in the elevator and and I have three floors. So first thing, I think they need to use a holistic approach. We've learned that from the pandemic that that worked. So you cannot now with the uh, Ukraine crisis only think of it as an economic or trying to battle inflation. So we need to look at mental health and the concerns that people have and the impacts that that has on their lives. So holistic approach, consider all these elements. And then I think the second and the third we've kind of covered, but I really think we must uh, avoid this growing uh, risk of of yet another generation of young people that is disadvantaged. And then always, you know, that group that was already disadvantaged becoming more disadvantaged. So I really think uh, this needs to be a focus for policymakers and ensure that this uh, intergenerational disadvantage is uh, doesn't grow further. And the last one that I would say in the elevator, please pay attention to gender equality and make sure that we return to the positive trend that we had pre-pandemic. And I, I think childcare is key there. Thank you very much, uh, Daphne. That is uh, important also to highlight again that this is the European Year of Youth. 
Of course, every year is the year of youth and the future of Europe is in their hands, but it's also in ours. And so to focus on young people as one of the critical elements, as you're saying that you see in the survey, worrying trends there. Thank you, Daphne. It's been a fascinating, uh, quick ride through the top level findings of this unique survey. This is not the end of the survey. Of course, we will be looking into the future. It will have adaptations and changes. And we may, I hope, not be looking only at the results of the impact of COVID, but looking beyond to maybe capture the um, feelings of Europeans on various issues um, into the future. But for now, I thank you for joining us this morning on this episode of Eurofound Talks. For you, our listeners, please feel free to access the information that we have been talking about this morning on our website, Eurofound's main website, where you can find all of the information we have discussed and more. And of course, you can access our other editions of Eurofound Talks, which ranged from issues on young people, on gender equality, as we talked about earlier, but also included Future of Europe and indeed an interview with European Commissioner Schmidt, who has many of these issues as his key priorities. So until next time, when Eurofound Talks, to you. Good jobs, quality jobs. We still have so much to do for women's rights. For the parents to go to work, you need good childcare. We will not have a successful recovery if we leave social rights. Reinventing our way of building and living. It is our right.